Hi, everybody. Before we get into this episode, I had to let you know, like I'm literally bursting at the seams, that on March 13th, Scouts Agency is launching something major. We have been working on this for months, all with the intention to serve your business expansion and catapult your brand awareness. Now, If you want to have first access at our early bird pricing plus access to bonuses, sign up on our waitlist at scoutsagency.com slash waitlist. There will be limited spots available, so if you've been ready to go from the plateaued business owner to the visible visionary, you're going to want first access. Again, that's scoutsagency.com slash waitlist. S-C-O-U-T-S-A-G-E-N-C-Y dot com slash waitlist to sign up for first access. I'm bursting at the seams and I know I have to keep this a secret for just a couple weeks longer, so cannot wait. Okay, let's get into the episode. Scout Sobel and welcome to the Emotional Entrepreneur Podcast, the podcast where we talk business strategy while also vulnerably connecting on emotional resilience. As the CEO and founder of Scouts Agency, a female-focused agency where we get women as guests on podcasts, and someone who has suffered from, managed, and lived with bipolar disorder, the intersection of mental health and entrepreneurship is where I find my success. If you are here, it is because you are ready to feel safe in your emotions so that you can live your life of purpose. Let's get into the inspiration, shall we? Hello, welcome back to the Emotional Entrepreneur Podcast. It is Scout, your host, and I got a good one for you today, guys. I got a good one. It was one of those interviews where I lost myself in it. I talked way more than I thought I would. It flowed. I could have continued talking to my guest this week for a very, very long time. So I just want to get into it because the wisdom, the value, the experience that Jess brings to this podcast and to her career, her following her podcast as well, is so immense. There is something about Jess that it's amazing to talk to her because when I was speaking to her in this episode, I felt as if I was receiving wisdom that only comes from experience over a long period of time. She is someone that has such a deep knowledge of business, such a deep knowledge of entrepreneurship. She was an entrepreneur way before this shit was trendy and uh, aspirational and running rampant through all of our circles. She is somebody who established herself very early on. I will read her bio in a second so you know exactly who she is. And she's been through a lot of phases. It was really amazing to hear where she's at now in her business, how she is taking a much more feminine approach to business, how her team takes summer Fridays, how mental health is at the forefront, spirituality is a big part of her life. And so I really, in the presence of of Jess Wiener, it was an opportunity for me to just sit and absorb as much as I possibly could so that I can implement it into my own life to be a better CEO, to be a better leader, to be a better entrepreneur. So I know I could sing Jess's accolades all day long. You will hear in this episode how in awe and enamored I am and was with her accomplishments and, and not just her accomplishments, but the way she was able to articulate what she learned from each phase of her life. I think that her story is a gift to all of us entrepreneurs today. So 
Who is Jess Wiener? Jess is a cultural expert and creative who has spent 26 years researching and educating on cultural trends in order to help people feel seen, heard, and understood. She is a best-selling author, podcast host, and speaker who has connected with audiences from the White House to Wall Street and studios to schools around the world. Considered a brand's secret weapon, Jess is a trusted advisor to companies such as Mattel, Warner Brothers, and Nike. She has been a strategic partner in culture-changing moments such as Dove's campaign for real beauty and the evolution of Barbie. Through her consultancy, Talk to Jess, Jess and her team help Fortune 500 companies to become more inclusive and culturally fluent. She is also an adjunct professor at USC and was recently named by Fast Company as one of the most creative people in business in the areas of diversity and education. Jess is the producer and creator of online courses called The Good Life, a series focused on personal and professional development, and recently launched a podcast with Shonda Rhimes and iHeartRadio called Dominant Stories. So I think you can understand why my accolades are the way that they are, why they are coming across the way that they are. Jess is not only has an incredible resume and portfolio behind her, but she also has the wisdom and the knowledge and the experience to help guide us entrepreneurs through our path. So without further ado, Jess Wiener. So Jess, I'm sure a lot of people talk to you about the ridiculously impressive career that you have had. Over the 26 years, you're like this culture expert. You've worked with Dove and Barbie and Nike and the White House and Wall Street. And the list of reputable and incredibly impressive people that you've been able to work with over the last 26 years is very, very inspiring. And I want to take it back to 25 years ago. (laughs) Okay. I want to hear about where you were before you got into this career, what was your emotional state and how did it all start? So I would say at the crux of my passion for being an entrepreneur scout and really focusing on that intersection of representation and, you know, working with brands and businesses came from a really personal space for me as a, as a girl and as a teenager, because I loved media and I didn't see a lot of folks in media that looked like me or my friends or had stories like the people that I knew. So I always had a curiosity about who's the gatekeeper here. I mean, that sounds kind of advanced for a kid mind, but I swear to you, that was what I was thinking. It was like, who says, who says, who gets to do these things and, and how do I get there? So I would say my emotional mindset early on was curiosity. And why that's important is because as I began to go through some requisite teenage stuff, right? Poor body image, low self-esteem, kind of questioning my place in this culture that puts a real emphasis on a particular type of way a woman should be. My curiosity is what led me to think about starting and forging a path on my own to combine the things that I loved the most. And I started my business as a college graduate, I had graduated from school early. I was not even 21 years old yet. I had three degrees that guaranteed me to make no money in the world. <laughs> like it was, what what were they? They were theater, playwright and a performer and a director, women's studies, because that was a huge passion of mine that I discovered in college. And then classics, I lived in Greece and I studied the classics and the art of debate and culture and society. So all of this now makes sense. But going back 25 years, I thought, how am I going to get paid to do any of these things? And I would say that 
The benefit for me, and I always like to say this to like younger audiences, uh, just to put it into context, I am, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So I did not have the compare and despair cycle of social media. I did not know what other people were doing in the world. So my ambition wasn't thwarted by comparison. And so while it was motivated by the curiosity to understand the systems, I just knocked on every single door and figured out a way to make a career doing what I loved. And again, pre-internet, a little ahead of my curve in doing that. And, um, you know, I cobbled it together. I think every entrepreneur's story for me, I always appreciate when somebody tells the truth, which is mine was never a straight line. It's always been this circuitous journey that I did not have planned. I didn't even know the word brand at that time. I didn't even call myself an entrepreneur. I just knew I was a young woman who had healed from some things in her life and was healing through things that lit me up, made me want to do it for a living, wasn't sure how to put all these intersections together of what I loved. And I happen to benefit from a time where I got to be a pioneer in a space, you know, by virtue of the fact that like that was my life coming together with where the world was. And so there's luck in that. There's a lot of hard work in that. And there's also just circumstance that I can't, you know, can't really control. Okay, so I'm so interested because I found entrepreneurship at the age of 22, which was eight years ago. And even eight years ago, the word entrepreneur wasn't what it is today. I stumbled upon it. I wanted to start a magazine. I was in the depths of my bipolar disorder and couldn't hold down a job. And yet something about starting my own magazine sparked such inspiration that it moved me forward. It was almost like this lightning bolt of energy that moved me forward. And then Sophia Amoroso came out with her book, Girl Boss. And so that's kind of when I recognized in myself at that time that there was a path forward that was called entrepreneurship. But to go back 25 years ago, to know that it was that different eight years ago, what what gave you the courage or even the idea to do something of your own in a time where I'm sure, since I know it wasn't when I started, an obvious or even glorified choice? No, not at all. It was quite a lonely choice. Candidly, I think it was just youthful ambition, slight bit of ignorance and a ton of like chutzpah. Like I just... I didn't have anything to lose. And that's what I love about talking and coaching young people and teaching young people is I do think you're at a period, I was at a life stage where I didn't have a mortgage to pay. I didn't have kids. I didn't have responsibilities. And, and I will say this, and I think it's important because I think I used to think about entrepreneurship as like the white founder guy doing his thing. Right. And, and also I used to think about entrepreneurship as a tangible you know thing not a service like i am an entrepreneur offering my creative ip my strategic ip my talent in a way that's not gadgets and gadgets and so i didn't see the lane for that i made the lane for that in my own life but again i can't say it was ultra purposeful outside of like i just followed one step to the other one clue to the other right i'm, I'm very good at putting deals together or trying to figure out like what does somebody need and how do i get paid to help them do that so for instance i was a teenager and a young adult who struggled with an eating disorder and i had gone through recovery and and had a lot of skills and tools and understanding of that world even at a young age and i thought well i want to help other people do that so who's in the business of helping people with eating disorders and at that time eli Lilly, that makes the prozac which was like the number one antidepressant being you know marketed to people who had eating disorders 
you know, they were in my the hometown that I was living in. I was in Indianapolis. That's their headquarters. And I remember like writing a grant to them to get money to like help underwrite a play that I wanted to put on about eating disorders. Right. And so what I do that I think has been successful is I match shared mission together. Now, look, I didn't want to go in and promote pharma. That wasn't my goal. But my goal was how do I get somebody to pay and unlock an opportunity to go help people? And when you meet people at the intersection of that, then the entrepreneurship for me, it took on a different tone. It was all about, it was really back to creating. It went back to my creative roots, which was like, you know, I'm improvising as I go. And that was really familiar to me. And I think I latched onto that more than like the business concept of entrepreneur. So there's a lot of similarities in in the way that you do things and in the way that I do things. And chutzpah is a beautiful way to put it. And I think it's also just like this for me. And let me know if this resonates, because a lot of people in this audience might be dealing with imposter syndrome or might feel uncomfortable in that improvisation aspect of building a career. For me, it's always been, oh, that sounds good. Go over there. Try to figure it out. OK, that sounds good. Go over here. Try to figure it out. And there's almost like less thinking and more executing, if that makes sense. If you were to tell someone who's very early on in their entrepreneurial dreams or pursuits, but they're getting blocked by that uncertainty, by the fact that it's not necessarily a do A plus B to get to C, how would you help them calm those nerves and jump into the improvisation of entrepreneurship? Well, look, I think whether we're comfortable with it or not, our entire lives are improvisations, which just means that, you know, the stakes are high and we don't know what happens next. And that's the reality of it. So I would put it in the perspective of like, nobody gets this right the first time. That's the one first thing I'm going to say. And the second thing is all adults are fucking faking it. So just full stop. All right. No matter how much money you have, no matter what title you have, I think at the core, all of us are just trying to figure out like, how do we behave in the way we think we're supposed to behave? So everybody who's trying to figure out like, how do I get somewhere? I would ask yourself a different question. And I would say, what is my unique element that I bring to this that nobody else has? When I teach my college course, I talk about it as a unique selling proposition, but it sounds very technical. But what I mean it to be is, it's like, do some introspection and figure out why you, what makes you have to do this work? Because I do think entrepreneurs are a certain type of person. I think you have to have both the passion and the vision, but I think you do have to have a different relationship with risk. This is somebody who has to be comfortable with getting it wrong. And we're going to get it wrong a lot. So I think making peace with that, knowing that nobody's getting it right, but also trying to figure out why you, because that's going to help you get to your next step, right? And it's all about communication for me with entrepreneurship. It's telling your story to people. It's getting them to buy into the mission. You know, whether you're raising funds or whether you're talking to customers or, you know, other people, like it's about your story. And so I think if you focus on that and less of what you think you quote unquote should be doing, then you're really running your race and not somebody else's. Mm, so, so beautiful. I love that. I always say that even in the nine to five, there's uncertainty because someone else could very easily lay you off or you're putting a lot of trust in the CEO to run that ship well, to ensure your job security. And so to be able to reframe that perspective with uncertainty and to understand the amount of risk that goes into all of this is very, very true. You said something earlier, and I, I kind of want your cultural opinion on this. You very early on asked, who's the gatekeeper to all of this? 
And in today's time, there kind of aren't as many gatekeepers with the internet and social media. And so in your perspective, democratizing media, democratizing podcasts, democratizing social media, where you don't have to be a journalist, you don't have to listen to a radio station, you don't have to be told that you get to be on TV. What has that culturally done for us? Do you think it's freed us up more or do you think it's at our detriment a little bit, especially as entrepreneurs? I think the toothpaste is out of the tube in what we're talking about. It's not going back in. I think the way we have structured social media and the ability to democratize content, anybody can publish on any platform at any time, is an incredible freedom that did not exist in my formative years and including my formative years in business. I was waiting for the gatekeepers to open the gate. And there were like, you know, four major networks at the time. There, you couldn't skip advertising. Advertisers had a huge role in shaping culture because you were inundated with their ads and you had no opportunity to opt out, right? And of course, from an emotional level, there weren't communities to opt into, to find like-minded people more easily like we can now. So I think where we stand from a social media perspective is quite progressive and opportunistic. I also think there are gatekeepers. I think the platforms are gatekeepers. There are still corporations that run those platforms that have algorithmic bias, that take down people's content, you know, if they don't fit a certain uh, stereotypical standard. You know, I think there's I think there's always going to be gatekeepers in business because somebody's making the money. So you got to follow the money and all of that. But the good news, I think, for entrepreneurship is we have tipped the scales. There are more female-owned businesses being started than ever before, and they are specifically in the realm of women of color starting those businesses at a faster rate than ever before. We still need to fund those businesses. We still need to grow those businesses. But I look at the trend culturally in customization and the ability to reach an audience without a lot of money and without a lot of obstacle in a lot of ways, if you're able, again, to find that truth. So I think we're at a really unprecedented moment of innovation. I also think a lot of innovation is going to come out of a really kind of terrible, you know, cultural time that we're in right now. What I find so fascinating, one, I agree with everything you said, of course, but what I find so fascinating about entrepreneurship today, especially because there's so many more female founded businesses that I believe, and this is just kind of an intuitive hunch because as a female entrepreneur, I now have a circle of female entrepreneurs and we get to have these conversations about what does mental health look like in the workspace and conversations around what does a nine to five actually mean and how can we afford our team flexibility and all of a sudden, I believe we get to reimagine as women a way of business as entrepreneurs. Can you talk about that cultural trend? Because I feel as if as more women are getting empowered in business, at least in my circle, and I could be in an echo chamber, we're not jumping into business trying to be men and trying to do the old way. We're jumping into a business and in a very new type of way, like very new. And I think it's so incredibly beautiful. And I would just love your perspective on that transition or that you know elevation almost. 
I think it's beautiful too. I can't say that I was the same when I started. I think I was most absolutely emulating a masculine way of doing business. Those were the gatekeepers I was working with most of the time, especially with large Fortune 1 and 500 companies. I was often the only woman in the room, definitely a young woman and had a lot of ageism against that. Whereas I think youth culture has a different respect right now. I think after Mark Zuckerberg as a young person started Facebook and grew that to a multi-billion dollar business, I think the way we looked at young entrepreneurs changed. But I remember explicitly being asked and questioned quite a bit, how do I know what I know at this age and kind of distrustful of my youth? So I would say that I spent a good part of my time building my career, looking around and trying to emulate the sort of boss I was supposed to be. I think I've been a terrible boss at times. I think I have gone way out of what is authentic and integral to me in order to try to run a business the way I think a business is supposed to be run. And I'll give you an example. I put a lot of emphasis, like many people do, especially when you've been in business for yourself for so long, on the financial return. Of course you wanna be profitable. Of course you wanna make money. That's the reality of living in our capitalistic world. But I think I put too much emphasis on the result. And in that process of focusing so much on the destination, I lost sight of the journey. And I think the way I managed change because the way I managed myself was not in integrity and was not in full and complete health. And so I've had a real health mind, body, spirit revolution, I would say maybe like the last eight years or so that has really shifted the way I've decided to show up. I've had a lot of material success in my life and I'm deeply proud of that. But what I'm most proud of is that I run a small team here in Los Angeles. And during COVID, I think August of last year, I decided for mental health reasons, we were gonna go to a four and a half day work week. And I had lots of other entrepreneurs and consultants of mine say, how are you going to train your clients not to send you something on Friday? And like, we're not taking meetings on Friday. How are you going to, you know? And I thought, you know, we'll talk to them about it. We'll let them know these are our new boundaries. But giving my employees and my staff a two and a half day weekend made a huge difference in morale for the team. I instituted mental wellness stipends once a quarter that are unlimited reimbursable accounts that they can go and do something good for themselves, get a babysitter, get Botox, go, you know, go out to dinner, get a massage, like whatever you need to take care of yourself. I prioritize that as a perk for the business. And of course I amplified our mental health care coverage, especially during COVID to make sure it was affordable and accessible for my team. Now I'm able to do that because I've had some, some success financially to be able to afford those things. But I also grew to learn the value of that personally, because it wasn't just about taking care of my team, it was about taking care of myself. And when I started to put myself back in the center of my own work and stopped overproducing and people pleasing and focusing so much on external success, I have found a real balance of being a high performance achiever and also somebody who has the most downtime I've ever had in my life, the most introspective time and creative time I've ever had in my life. And that to me has been 26 and a half years in the making. Oh my gosh, there's so much in there. I mean, on a spiritual level, this is like the feminine rising in many ways, the kind of deconstructing and, and almost debunking this idea that we need to be masculine and aggressive and work really hard to be successful. And it, it takes a while for us to understand that we can have this beautiful balanced life and be very successful. I find that I'm very fortunate with a mental illness because I had to implement those things in order to be successful. And I've had found success within that, you know, and I also, as a boss, and I'm so interested in this because I started my agency three years ago and 
at the beginning of January 2021, I had one full-time employee and one very part-time. And today we're a team of total seven. And so my mind shifted from, this is going to sound really bad and I apologize. I'm just going to say it so we can be honest here. You work for me and I pay you. So like, why do I have to cater to your lifestyle? And And now I'm like, what do you guys want? How do you want to be happy? You want to take, you know, Friday off? You want to work from home? Like now seeing a team operating, it is no longer about me. I'm completely out of the ego of this is my land. And it is a complete collective. And the collective works together when everybody feels supported and heard and seen. And as if they can go to a doctor's appointment and not feel like they have to lie about something like that. Or even maybe they have a headache and they need to take a nap. You know, there's so much more. And I think COVID really gave us this idea of a flexible work life. But you said, one, I want to go back to some tips to be integrity as a boss. But first, can you tell us what that maybe it was one tipping point, maybe it was a rock bottom that shifted your perspective from being a boss out of integrity to the boss you are today. I think there are many things that led me to that awareness. I think, you know, my own personal growth and evolution, having some really bad hires and bad fires and realizing like trying to understand what kind of business I wanted to make as an entrepreneur. I grew really fast with the success of some of the brands that you mentioned that I've worked with, um, like Dove or Barbie. And, you know, I was building a kind of business for a period of time that wasn't what I really wanted. It was what everybody else thought I should be doing. And it was certainly very lucrative, but it wasn't germane to my roots, right? Which was this at that intersection of what I majored in. It was like the creative and the political and social and the feminist and humanist parts. And I I had over-rotated into, um, into things that weren't making me happy. So I think it's a confluence of things that came up for me over my, my growth period and enough pain to make me come back and say, I want to do this differently or I don't want to do it at all. And I think what I hear and what you just shared is like two things. I think one is I hear recovery and progress. I mean, that's what happens when we put ourselves, you know, and our well-being first. And I think a lot of people who struggle with mental wellness or any other affliction, you know, we there's often a identity gap, right, of like, of not knowing how to take care of ourselves in certain ways. And so when you ask your employees or your staff, what do you need? What works for you? I imagine that's the question you're also asking yourself. What do I need and what works for me? And when I started doing that, that's when it started shifting for me. So, you know, I had a bunch of different painful moments where I was like, oh, I'm unhappy. I don't like this. This person quit. They hate me. I hate that, you know, all this stuff. And then I thought, this isn't about that. What am I building and why am I building it? And I lost a little sight of that vision. And when I did some more work and recovery, because I think recovery is an always on process for me, and I've grown and I've thankfully been able to redesign a team much like you described where we center on our humanity and on our health and well-being. I bumped that up to the top principal value of the business during COVID. You know, COVID has been so detrimental in so many ways, and it's been incredibly shifting, as you said, in so many ways. And for me, it was a leveler. I just thought, you know what, truly at the end of the day, we don't get an opportunity like this that everybody is experiencing at the same time. And I chose to seize it instead of run for it and trust that it was still going to be profitable. And I am more profitable today than we were two years ago. So it continues to grow, even putting that lighter work schedule, more mental health connection, you know, more flexibility has actually been more profitable for me than the attempt to be in control. 
Oh my gosh. It's so good. For anyone listening, let's talk a little bit about the being the boss because what you just described, the working less or the more flexibility, the kind of fill your cup up, make sure you're good before you come to work provides or creates even more profitable business. For anyone who is a new boss, because this hit me in the head, okay? This hit me in the head. All of a sudden I was like, I'm responsible for all these people and how do I manage them and speak to them properly and in a new kind of business paradigm world where we're not just associates, we're not just co-workers. There's, a, there's an intimacy there, especially with women. I work with all women. Figuring out who you are as a boss is a very complex thing and it requires a lot of soul searching and getting to know you. So what are some tips that you can give for anyone who is just starting to build a team that they can use to act in integrity as they continue to strengthen their position as a leader? Well, you're only going to be, I think, as good of a boss to others as you are as a caretaker to yourself. So what I would say is really what I've learned is continue to get to know yourself, understand yourself, be inquisitive and introspective about yourself so that you are also open to critique, open to growth, open to seeing where your patterns and issues come up. Because this is the number one thing I'll say about being a boss in general is, you know, we're, everybody's an imperfect human. We're all trying to figure it out. When I said, we're all a bunch of, you know, adults are a bunch of phonies. It's like, you can have experience that makes you more qualified, but people are people. And so I just say, get in touch with who you are, know yourself, right? Continue to learn about yourself. That's really important. I think sometimes people hide behind titles and then you stop learning, you stop growing. And I think that can be dangerous. The other thing I would say is try to lead with as much grace and flexibility as possible. I now say to my team, which I never used to do before, I don't know, give me a second. Let me figure that out. I'm not so sure what I want to do. Whereas before I would be like, oh my God, if I don't have an answer, they're not going to trust me. I'm not the leader. Like I've got to know everything. And that kind of performance on demand burned me out. So, you know, now I'll say, I don't know, let me think about it. I take lots of nights to sleep on things now where I used to make some very impulsive decisions. So that's all been a learning curve for me. And I think it's made me a better leader because of that. And then the, maybe the last thing I'll share on how I've learned to lead and be a, and be a boss more specifically is keep the communication going. I think especially in a remote work environment or however you're working, if you've got virtual teams or not, you know, in this absence of communication, a lot of assumption gets made. So communicate, you know, regularly. I always say to my team, I'm a super over communicator. I'll check on you 10 times just because on the 10th time something might come up and I want there to be an opportunity, you know, for us to talk about it. So I think in this new way that we are communicating these little boxes on a screen, Real communication is important, not the transactional stuff at work, as you mentioned, but like really connecting in. And and again, all of these have been learned along the way. I mean, I could have read this in a book 20 years ago, and I probably wouldn't have followed any of it. So just know, you know, you're on the journey and be open to learning how to be a better human. It'll make you a better boss. You said the word recovery a couple of times, and I would love to understand and hear about what your relationship to that word is and what recovery means to you because you could have said self-growth, you could have said personal development, but recovery, at least for me, brings a very, very specific thing to mind. So I'd love to hear what recovery means to you. Yeah. I mean, I think as somebody who struggled with mental health issues, specifically an eating disorder and trauma, childhood trauma, and focusing on perfectionism and all of these issues that are comorbid with a lot of mental health issues. 
recovery for me is about recovering from learned behaviors that have, I've had in my life, be it from trauma, from an eating disorder, from just being raised and socialized as a woman in this culture. You know, um, recovery for me is about unlearning, actually. I think a lot of times people think about recovery as getting better. And I guess I've looked at my recovery as how do I unlearn the patterns and the beliefs that have been so detrimental to me and have been so hurtful to me? How have I re-hurt myself with those patterns and how do I unlearn those patterns? And so I'm recovering from a lot of things. You know, I'm recovering from living in a super capitalistic world and trying to have my relationship with things be different. I'm recovering from, you know, all the bad boss moments I've had, I've been recovering from bad relationships. So I look at it as like an, a learning and an unlearning, right? And and I use that also because I think that, you know, at the core for me, I do a lot of work around dominant stories at a podcast called Dominant Stories. I, I do workshops about dominant stories. And for me, that was my framework for what I was looking to recover from, which was this like incessant internal voice that told me stories about myself that weren't true. And I had to figure out a way to engage with that voice and challenge and change it and eventually rewrite some of these stories. And, and that was a really key component of my recovery was creatively reimagining a relationship to voices I think I've had since I was like, I don't know, six, seven years old. That leads me so beautifully into my next question. I'm always really fascinated by the pep talk that we give ourselves. <laughs> and I would love to hear what your pep talk is and maybe how it's changed over the years. What that internal, what do you say to yourself when you when you need some? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, that's such a great question. So I'm a lover of words and a writer of words. And so words matter to me. So mantras have always been at the core of my self-talk when I'm working on a way to be kinder to myself. Um, and I'm surrounded by them. If you were to look around my office right now, my vision boards, my work board, everything has affirmations, mantras, because I, I believe in a reprogramming that's part of my relearning, right? But what I don't believe in are these sort of rah-rah pep talks or these sort of very, um, so for me, what works is a compassionate talk. I'm working a lot on self-compassion for myself. So I'm working on a bunch of exciting projects right now and they're scaring me because I'm stepping way out of my comfort zone on a couple of them. And normally, just to show you what my recovery looks like, normally I would have just like buttoned up, powered through, don't tell anybody you're scared, you can do this, be the boss, be the, you know, whatever and go, right? And then I would, of course, have massive inner turmoil because of that, because I wasn't being authentic. And I found myself doing two things that are evidence of my work in changing my dominant stories, because my dominant story would have said, well, you can't tell people you're scared. They're not going to trust you. They're not going to believe in you. You're not going to get that opportunity. They're going to take it away. And instead, I did two things. I talked to myself like I wished I would have been spoken to as a little girl who was scared. And I said, you know, gosh, this is like super exciting that you're getting these chances to do these things. And it must be really scary. It's okay to be both. You can be excited and scared. Like I talked to myself, I reparented myself in that moment, right? I had like a conversation with the most love and compassion I could. And then I turned to my husband and I said, and I'm getting really much better at doing this. I'm scared. I just need to say, I'm scared. I'm excited about these things, but I'm also scared. I'm going to fuck it up. And I just needed to say that out loud. And I need you to know that I'm like not handling it well today. And he was like, great. Okay. How can I support you? You know, we have our whole dance down, but those were two things, believe it or not, for me, were very hard to do in the past. Speak to myself kindly 
and ask for help or share authentically when I was feeling unsure. And as simple as that sounds, it goes the mile for me much more than like, you can do it, you know, bounce back, like all the, for me, those are cheap in a sense, because the expensive part is recognizing you can hold both things to be true, you know, and, and that kindness and that tenderness is really, really important for me to boost me back up. Hearing someone like you who has such longevity in her career and has achieved such levels of, of success and excellence in so many ways, to hear you say that you're still afraid is such a beautiful thing because it was when I accepted that no matter how strong I am, no matter how much experience I have, no matter what destination I get to, I am never exempt of the human condition and I will never stop growing. And if I never stop growing, I will always feel uncomfortable emotions. And so when it comes for me, it is that, oh, I can hold both. And so to hear you reflect that is so beautiful because I think it gives a lot of people permission because I think when people get scared, they think it's a wrong sign. It's like, oh, don't go there. But rather, I think it's such an invitation into your next level. And so that relationship that you have with your fear is really, really beautiful. And I just want to say thank you for sharing that because it, I think, will really allow people to redirect their attention or at least redirect their path forward when fear comes to the table. I hope so, because you're so right. It's such a beautiful sentiment. We're never going to be exempt from the human like condition. And the other thing I'll say, especially if you're a female entrepreneur out there, or you're somebody walking upstream in an industry or trying to disrupt something where you're the minority of a dominant culture. What I will say is there could be this incredible pressure to make everything mean everything, right? To have to prove it all and to have to like, you know, I, that's why I hate like the 30 under 30 list and the 40 under 40 list and all these sort of, you know, kind of random celebrations. Here's the thing I've learned being an entrepreneur for a long time. I have never worked for anybody else. So my entire journey has been self-funded. I also didn't have funders. You know, it's been grown organically and painfully, and I didn't come from money and I didn't come from entrepreneurs. So it's not like I got blessed into this business, right? And this is what I will tell you from my hard-earned and hard-earned lessons. Nothing is as serious as we think it is <laughs> at the end of the day, like perspective matters. And if I could tell myself anything from an earlier part of my life, it would have been to just enjoy that process a little bit more, even the screw-ups because that grace and space, you know, potentially I could have learned maybe a little bit more or had more fun in the failure because the failure is inevitable. We're going to screw up. We're going to mess up. It's like no one, as you said, is exempt from that, but um, that's not a, it's not a period to a sentence. It's like an ellipses. It's like, and then you get to create what's next. And I look, that's easier said than done. And I get it. I think you have to live through some moments to really grapple with that. But I want to say that anyway, because that permission we seek also, and I appreciate your sentiment, it also doesn't have to come from the outside. We can start to work on that from the inside now. And I wish that that's maybe like the thing I would have told myself earlier on if I could. That's really beautiful. Yeah. There was one thing you said that just literally escaped my mind that I really, really fucking wanted to touch on and it's going to kill me for the rest of the day. Well, it wasn't meant to be spoken out loud at this exact <laughs> moment, I suppose. I have one more question. And it's a little bit of a weird question, and I hope you understand what I'm trying to ask here. 
You know those moments, it's kind of similar to what you were talking about when, well, first of all, I don't have a charge around the word failure. Like it's not negative or positive for me. It's just like a, oh, you should have gone right or go the other way or whatever. It's just like a, it's like a street sign for me. And I think removing that charge has helped me not be afraid of it. But when we're in those moments of failure. Can I ask you something? How did you get to that place? Did you have to remove a charge or was that just not one of your triggers? I'd love to hear more on that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I think it's something that I never struggled with that. Inherently, I rebelled against the system that people tried to put me in. So in high school, I rebelled against a GPA. I didn't understand how you could ever measure me up in a number. And so I didn't get into any colleges And my parents were very upset. They paid for private Jewish school (laughs) my whole life. And I looked at them and I was like, they just don't understand that that's not really important. And that doesn't really define who I am. And so I think because truly I, I merit everything back to my disorder because I can't really operate in a quote unquote normal trajectory. It was never an option to go back to something safe. And so Every time I quote unquote failed, it was like, okay, well, what's next? And there were dark moments where it felt crazy because I wrapped my whole identity up in something and it was much more of a failure for me has always been much more of a grieving process than than like a shameful process, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I started my agency three years ago, but I had a magazine I sold it and then I was a director of operations to get this other site started up. And then I did a social media agency for like four months and I hated it. And then I did a blog. And so I've always been really comfortable with just going on to the next thing if it didn't work. And I think it's because I never had that cookie cutter put together reputation since I was young. I was the girl in therapy. I was the college dropout. I was the girl on psych meds early on. And so because no one expected perfection from me, I just didn't give a shit. And I was like, well, I'm going to figure it out myself. Yeah. And then perfection and failure do go hand in hand. I think perfectionists like, you know, that, thank you for answering that. Because I, I think as I heard you say that, I thought, God, I wonder why. And, you know, for me, right. Failure was the absolute opposite of what I was supposed to do. Like, do not fail at all costs. Be perfect. Don't let them see you sweat. Like, And that unlearning has been remarkable. I don't know if that I'm fully all the way there to have it without a charge, but I've definitely shifted the relationship to say, just like you did, it's a sign. Like a no is pointing me in the direction of a yes. So just, I, I keep that in mind. And I also do like rejections, God's protection is kind of the mantra I do a lot when things don't go my way because boy, have I been pr- protected when I thought I was failing. Yeah, there's that, I heard that quote really early on and I think it really made an impression on me. I don't know who it's by, but it, I'm sure I could Google it. It's like someone said, I wish that you could fail as quickly and as fast as possible so that you could reach success sooner. And so that was always, I think, a framework for me. I was like, oh no, I have to fail a bunch of times in order to reach success. And maybe that quote mm-hmm. really also helped define that. I don't know. Yeah, that's a cool mindset. Yeah. Okay, one last question. What's the mantra you go to in those moments where you cannot see the truth of what's happening and you are so pinpointed in that in that failure or that fire that you're putting out and it's the, the nervous system's overdrive? How do you bring yourself back to reality? So there's two things that I've learned how to do. One is somatic, which is tend to my body, right? A somatic experience is a full physical experience. So 
if my head is going haywire and I'm panicking or I'm anxious or I'm sad or I'm scared and it feels overwhelming and uncontrollable, I put my feet on the ground, I take off my shoes and I literally ground myself in the room I'm in or the grass I go to because I need to remember I live in a body. And then that gets me connected to other things, my breath, my tension. I can feel if it's in my shoulders and I start to tend to my physical form. And what that does for me is it interrupts that cognitive behavioral pattern of repetition, right? Which is a lot of what dominant stories will do to you. The second thing I do is I rewire my language, but I don't, for me in those moments, mantras don't work. Mantras work for me when I'm like, just in my everyday, I'm looking around and it's like, success is easy. Like I'm a change maker. Like those are great things just to reinforce. But if I'm in the middle of a panic attack, mantras don't work. What works for me is again, gentle consultation with myself. So I now ask myself, what do you need? What do you need? Do you need to pee? Do you need to eat? Do you need to rest? Do you need to take a break? Do you need to go to sleep? And then I commit to taking an action for myself in that moment. So I try not to get in my head and root around and try to solve it from the same place where the problem's from. I'm never going to get there. I try to tend to the body. Then I go to the heart and the mind. And then I take some sort of action that is loving in nature. And trust me, there are plenty of times when I ask that question and it's like seven o'clock at night. And this has actually happened a lot lately. I'm in bed by seven o'clock. If what I feel like in that moment is you need to go lay down, you just need to turn off the day and take it again in the morning. That has been, I mean, such a boost to my mental wealth and health. So beautiful. Thank you. This was an absolutely incredible conversation. I enjoyed this tremendously. I feel inspired. I know everybody else is going to too. Can you tell us where to find you and a little bit about your podcast, Dominant Stories? Sure. Well, Dominant Stories is anywhere you're listening to podcasts. Um, and I've got a couple cool things coming out this year. So if you want to follow on um, Instagram, I I'm loving being on right now. I'm on everything. And usually it's at Jess Wiener. Our Instagram is I'm Jess Wiener. But my website is JessWiener.com, W-E-I-N-E-R.com. And I have a list. And if you want to get on it, I can share with you what's up and where to you know, find courses or projects that we're working on. So I'm, I'm out there. Come and find me. Beautiful. Thank you. And everyone, you know where to find me on Instagram at Scout Sobel. I will see you next episode. I hope this episode has landed with you in the perfect timing that you need it. I hope that it gives you the courage to chase after your dreams and purpose. If you are so willing, I would be honored if you would text this episode to a friend, if you would rate the podcast five stars and write a review, and follow me on Instagram at Scout Sobel. Over there, you can find links to sign up for my newsletter, which is also in the show notes, and get involved in all of my offerings, from Scout's Agency to OKSIS Podcast to this podcast. If you're looking for a deeper dive of my work, you can find my debut book, The Emotional Entrepreneur, on Amazon. I am so appreciative you are here, and I will see you on the next episode.